Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Time of Contempt, Chapter 5, and I'm joined once again by Joshy Rapier. Hello. Hello. Nice to be back. So this chapter is, uh, you know, the aftershocks of Than- the Thanid coup uh, and all that jazz. And it's a very politics-heavy uh, one with a lot of flashes to uh, various different political things going on. And it didn't strike me as the type of chapter that you would come on to, but yet you requested. So I want your take on why was this chapter one of the ones you wanted to come on. I think people who follow the show will find it pretty obvious by now. This is a very dandelion-heavy chapter, so naturally <laughs> I had to commentate. Uh, but you are right, I don't normally deal with the mythical, like, politics kind of stuff, because there's just so many names, so many factions I have to memorize. But I liked how this chapter dealt with it in a very organic way to kind of break down the aftershocks of the, you know, the shocking events of the coup. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of having Dandelion be the one to tell Geralt all this, because, you know, you have Dandelion, one of the most romantic, you know, he romanticizes everything he, he, he sees and talks about in his songs, but he's the guy who has to deal in reality in this chapter and tell Geralt what's actually happening. So I found it interesting that, you know, he's the character to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we will actually see another part of this chapter in Baptism of Fire, Chapter 1. We will, um, uh, there, there was an offhanded mention by Geralt of a character called Milva uh, in this chapter. Milva's going to become a main character starting next book, and we will see her side of this chapter in the first chapter of Baptism of Fire. So we'll come back to this, but yeah, th- definitely... Um, you know, this being Dandelion's perspective on everything going on and him telling Geralt, who, you know, is going through a lot of shit, <laughs> needless yeah. to say, um, you know, it, and how him as a spy and him as a bard, he would have learned all this stuff uh, through heresy and through his own, uh, you know, job. Uh, and, and it's it's fun to return to the Dryads. Uh, you know, they're, they're isolationists, so of course, you know, they, they, they don't get heavily involved in a lot of stuff, but they are a sanctuary to those that they care about. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this chapter, uh, I, I think, is one of the, the exemplar um, bits where Sapkowski really plays with POV and how that changes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it comes more in the focus, especially in Lady of the Lake, but in here, you know, you have what we're seeing this perspective from Dandelion, Geralt, uh, in the Dryads, to, you know, random soldier, to, you know, a general, to a mirror, to, uh, you know, Faultest, etc. We are seeing the, the wide range of, uh, you know, different perspectives on the same events. Um, and how that colors one's experience. Uh, and it, it's a it's a really good chapter. You know, it, it serves it serves to tell us, uh, as I've talked about before. You know, this is a micro story in a macro story. So you know, uh, the politics would be the major focus of most you know big fantasy series. Whereas with Witcher, it's much more subdued, but we still have it there as the backdrop to you know really build up the tension for our three main characters as they are now divided. You know, we haven't really gotten the chance to talk about uh, Amir at all. Um, mm-hmm. We talked uh, over text a while back when you were watching the show, how I mentioned that the end of Season 2 reveals a major spoiler that will not be revealed until Lady of the Lake. 
but because of my spoiler rule uh, on here of if it's in the show, I talk about it. You know, Amir being, you know, Donnie being uh, Siri's dad. You know, he's got a major part to play in this chapter. Um, mm -hmm. What? What's what's your opinion on him having already had that reveal? How does that impact your reading, etc.? Yeah, this is one of those twists I didn't know about going into, but uh, I can see what a Netflix show revealed it so early. To be fair, I did feel like that was a really good hook for the for that season to end on. Uh, you know, you got to have a, a kind of Darth Vadery twist in in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, reading it. Well, then you told me about uh, his intentions in the future, so that makes it even more disturbing. Reading mm -hmm. his scenes now, you know, about how he'll go through hell to get Siri back. Uh, but it, it was cool to actually be, you know, behind an ill guardian's lines for once to see things from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, I feel like if you block their names, I wouldn't be able to tell them from the from the other courts we've been seeing in this chapter and the series, because <laughs> it all kind of just boils down to the same, you know, petty backstabs and, you know, privileges, all that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, to be fair enough, guard. Everything's a bit more um, stern. Um, they, they, they see the Northern Kingdoms as uncivilized, um, and so like the 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 absolute gaudy, you know, pretension of the Northern courts. Um, is not here in the Nor in in, in guard. Um, you know, there there's a lot less. Uh, there's still backstabbing going on, but there's a lot less of uh, a sense of uh, individual superiority instead. It's collective superiority. Mm. Um, and we'll get more into Nilfgaard and how Nilfgaard works. You know, we know they take slaves, uh, but also there is this. Uh, you know, uh, they they're very Roman. Um, in a lot of ways, but there's also this sense of um, they don't treat the elves the way the you know the northerns do. They even put them in their army, stuff like that. So like there is, you know, a complicated relationship there between imperial might and uh, advanced society, and how uh, feudal and more modern societies don't look all that different when um, uh, when you get down to it. Mm. Um, it's only the aesthetics to change. Everything else remains the same. But no, like, the Amir reveal, I think, is, you know, I had it spoiled myself because, um, you know, the games take it as major, you know, as, like, a big thing everyone should know. Uh, within the first, I'd say, hour of Witcher 3, you're already told this information. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, like, it, it's not a major thing for people coming from the games. And uh, and because of that, I was spoiled, and I got to see all the foreshadowing that he was doing. But I got to see through Claudia's eyes someone who didn't. Uh, and the reveal in Lady of the Lake hits so much harder if you don't know. Uh, because of how blind you were to all the foreshadowing. Uh, and then you go back and you realize that it's being set up from square one. Um, and it's always there. Um, and... I'm not sure how to feel about the reveal in in the show, uh, but you know, as long as it as long as it didn't affect you and your ability to enjoy his his chapters, because we had a chapter with him last uh, last book as well, you know, um, oh, that's still good. You know, you can still experience all. It, 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 honestly, on the second read, having you know 
had that revealed, or in your case, the first Wade, to me, it always makes him much scarier. Mm. Um, because you then see him playing 3D chess with everyone uh, in a way that uh, becomes even more um, menacing. You know, to him, the, uh, you know, the war doesn't really matter as much as it is to get Siri. Uh, this is a means to an end. Uh, and a means to uh, appease certain people in his court that, you know, we'll get to in several books' time. Uh, and so, like, he expects, um, you know, a, a, cer a certain level of uh, resistance. So, to quell that, you know, he is given special orders of burn everything that's alive. You know, do not, you know, it's scorched earth, do not hold back. Because... You know, he wants to sort of rile up the North in hopes of A, conquering territory to appease his uh, court, and then B, hopefully get get them in a, get them all corralled so he can find Siri in that corral. Uh, and, uh, you know, what is your take on him as a character having, knowing the twist, read Question of Price, see who he is, and then knowing what he is now, what's your, what's your take on the character? Well, it's funny because when I first read uh, A Question of Price, you know, uh, the hedgehog man, as I affectionately referred to him as, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is pretty sketchy. You know, he's been promised this essentially, you know, newborn child to be his bride, you know, some years in the future. And he's, you know, he's claiming that that's pretty creepy. But I guess this is a fairy tale. I'm not supposed to look too much of that stuff. And then with the reveal, all the stuff you told me, I was like, oh, it was meant to be creepy. Uh -huh. He is this messed up person so i thought that's either very clever retroactive fixing or brilliant foreshadowing and, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to take both <laughs> um i there is um there, there's actually a bit in question of price where he snaps at galanthi and it uh, of like you will give her hand to me now and you will do it personally basically that shows just how petty he is and because this, you know, this was planned, that's the real him coming out right then. And I pointed that out when I talked about uh, Question of Price, uh, you know, as, you know, on on the actual episode on the solo deal of that. Yeah, that's that's the real Amir showing his colors. You know, he he's he's a dick uh, and he's always been a dick and he can pretend to be something else. Um, and he, you know, he has layers. There's actually an interesting conversation him and Geralt will have in Lady of the Lake that actually shows just not only how twisted he is, but how weirdly honorable he is in a way, no matter how twisted he actually is. And uh, I think it's an interesting dichotomy. And I, you know, I'm glad you actually picked up on the, the super creep vibe from him on Question of Price, because not a lot of people do. Um, and, and then they're, they're smacked in the face of, oh, he was the evil emperor the entire time. <laughs> and I went, oh. Yeah, I should reread, I should reread that uh, short story now. I wonder if I could pick up on some more foreshadowing elements. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of little things, and you don't know the full story of why he was a hedgehog and whatnot, so I would suggest rereading it after you're done. Okay. Uh, because that will then inform everything he does in that chap in in that story. Uh, knowing what you know, uh, so you know he's a mirror, but you don't know why he's a hedgehog or what his ultimate plan is. Uh, quite yet. I mean, I've told you some of it, but you don't know everything. 
Good. Good to know. So uh, once you find that out, going back to question of price, he will give you an entirely different read on that story. Cool. I like stories where at the beginning of a series, you know, the main character meets a character who starts off small and then, you know, saves his life. He's always given the opportunity or, you know, the demand to kill him. And then later on, that snowballs into, oh, shit, I really should have killed this guy. Look at the mess we've mm-hmm. got now. So that, you know, it's like uh, the first episode of DS9, just a little reference. <laughs> Cisco saves the cut. Uh, and while I haven't gotten that series yet, I from you, I know what kind of shitstorm's coming <laughs> from that action, <laughs> from saving that guy's life. So yeah, uh, I find that stuff, you know, is interesting. The character, you know, if the main character tries to do the right thing, sometimes that works out. Sometimes that will massively snowball. You know, one massive domino chain. In Blood of Elves, in the chapter where Amir shows up, basically, there's there's a little line that uh, if you if you catch it, you notice. Of uh, uh, Amir says, "Tell Ryan's to stop pussyfooting around with the Witcher. I know him. He doesn't suffer fools easily." And uh, you know that that uh, you know that that shows some sort of connection there. That yeah. if you if you don't know the twist, you're like, "Huh." If you know the twist, you're like, "Oh fuck." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because they've both got that parallel of um, the law of surprise being you know the the key to everything. You know, and uh, that connects them to Siri essentially. Yep, both being fathers of Siri too. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting parallels you can draw between him and Amir that uh, get more interesting as time goes on. I, I don't want to spoil too much, so I won't. <laughs> okay, cool. You know, we, we just were talking about Geralt. So, uh, you know, Geralt goes into a spiral of depression in this chapter. Mm-hmm. He has lost everything. He's pretty sure Yen is dead. Um, He thinks Siri is dead until he finds out that quote-unquote Siri fake Siri, uh, you know, uh, was in the Nilfgaardian court. Um, and so his entire thing, you know, he's he's mentally scarred. He has his hand broken. Uh, he's lost his swords. His leg is broken and won't fully ever heal again. He now walks with a slight limp now. Um, and he feels a lot of pain in that leg and that will continue to be a thing. Um, and so, like, what is your take on, you know, we were introduced to this character, you know, having been mortally wounded in the Striga fight, uh, but there is this sense, you know, and, you know, in, in the games and the show have sort of exacerbated this issue of, you know, Geralt is totally awesome, he's wickedly cool, mm-hmm. he can do no wrong, and then he gets his ass handed to him, um, and... I talked about that in the Thanid Q chapter about how, you know, there, there's this great monologue by Vilgefortz of good versus evil, and you expect the good guy to triumph and finally win the battle, and nope. He gets his ass handed to him. And there is no great victory of good over evil. Just pain. Uh, and so here we see the aftershocks of that, of him completely spiraling into a pit of depression. So what is your take on not only Geralt... Um, we, we talked about, you know, Geralt potentially being on the spectrum. I talked about Geralt and mental illness. You know, what, what, what is your take on this character who was already attributing signs of mental illness going further down into that rabbit hole and having lost pretty much everything uh, and how that uh, goes against the grain of the cool monster hunter image that pop culture has of him? I found this chapter quite a big monument to the, you know, the character growth both him and Dandelion have gone through. Uh, to start off with 
this is, to me, this feels like the chapter where he fully embraces uh, the mistakes he's made. He's got the line, you're all right, only I, the naive, anachronistic and stupid witch is wrong. And that goes with what you're saying about that massive pit of depression he was falling into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I think this reflects on how he, he acts when Dandelion greets, when they meet up again, he's like, I'm glad you're here, you horse son. And mm-hmm. you know, the description's like, you know, there's something in his eyes have changed. So I feel like Dandelion was the right person at the right time to just about, you know, take him off the edge. You know, he was dangling over in a way. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the ending. So I feel like, I feel like he understands that he's, he's in this pit that he's kind of dug for himself. But in the ending, we see him, I've, well, this is my take on it anyway. I feel like he he has enough common sense and enough drive from the threat in that series under to pull himself out of it. Like Dandelion telling him about you know fake Siri uh, is what is like fatherly instinct kicks in. He's like, I can't let her be alone. I know it's I know what that's like for her. I won't ever let that happen again. So he gets up with his you know his broken ass. He dusts off as what wherever he can of his broken ego, and he sets himself on a quest and. Dandelion, I feel like uh, this is good. I feel like book Dandelion, or hell, even book Geralt at this point was just give up. But they've been through so much, you know, Siri in particular has affected Geralt's whole worldview. Uh, so I've, when they both agree at the end, we're going to go after her, we're going to save her. I feel like that's a massive testament to the, the story arc they've both gone through. Yeah, I, mean, I will say that uh, I definitely agree with your view of, you know, uh, he's... He's using the the Siri, uh, you know, being captured by Nilfgaard, even though he doesn't know that it's not really Siri, um, you know, to as a drive to move forward and try and get out of the pit. But there is also the sense of, and Dandelion expressly says it, going to the heart of Nilfgaard to rescue Siri um, is a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the likelihood that they come out of this alive, and, and Geralt says this, you know, either I will rescue her or I will die trying, you know, basically is what he says. And so like that, you know, there's almost a sense of, uh, you know, not quite death wish, but, uh, you know, in a, in a similar vein of, you know, uh, I've lost everything, so what do I have to lose? And we will touch upon this again, um, especially in Tower of Swallows and Lady of the Lake, when uh, some stuff happens. You know, uh, Geralt, uh, you know, is clearly not in a right headspace right now, um, and that's going to affect him quite a lot. And he doesn't realize it yet. You know, it, it's it's that it's that calm before the storm where you know having having clinical depression, I know this, of you feel like you can do something, you're going to push yourself to do it, but you're not quite ready to do it, but you do it anyway, and that and that causes issues that you must also overcome. Mm. Having Geralt beaten and broken, quite literally, uh, I think is an interesting way to take the character. You know, I, we, we talked about, you know, the, 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 uh, the mental illness potential, with him, and I've al- and I've always read him as someone with a mental illness. Uh, taking this and extrapolating it further, um, I think really fits with the vibe of the character. Um, and I also like how he has, in a sense, figured out his code, his ethics, and his neutral stance, and how that works. 
Um, he has a line in here where he says, uh, neutrality is always contemptible. Um, and in the last chapter, I talked about how there's, uh, there's a mage who, um, is so afraid for his life that he, uh, he runs away while Dordogary is, you know, bleeding out, uh, and tries to get away. And Geralt is, you know, enraged by that sight. Um, and I think... To me, the 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 Geralt neutrality thing, you know, people they have different reads on it depending on their leanings. Um, and we talked about the political alignment of this last time. Um, but I honestly think that you know there is a difference between neutrality and indifference. And I think what Geralt is overcoming is indifference. It's not necessarily that he cares about any great political stuff you know, equal rights or whatever, any abstract thing, he cares about Yen and he cares about Siri. Um, and he will do anything, you know, to get them and save them and keep them safe. And as a result, he's more than willing to break his code of absolute neutrality to take a side to ensure that, you know, uh, Yen and Siri are safe. So, um, what is your take on that, on that progression as the character, you know, starting from, uh, the first short story to now, his stance of neutrality, how that has changed, how that's evolved, how he's been called out on that behavior, and the difference between neutrality and indifference? It's interesting, I feel like if you were to put, uh, first book Geralt right next to this guy, I feel like there would be a massive tonal shift, because when we're introduced to Geralt, he's code and a barbarian, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, like you said in the past, he uses the whole mythical image of witches being, you know, emotionless as his comfort blanket. You know, he uses the code given to him to, as a guideline throughout his life. And now you've got this guy after everything he's been through, uh, you know, his guidelines can't help him here. This is a matter of his heart because, you know, as mm-hmm. much as he likes to deny it, he does have one. You know, Sir Yennefer and even, you know, Devil Dandelion have touched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regarding neutrality, because you know it's a it's a recurring theme throughout the series. You know everyone mm. hates that you know Geralt's neutral, uh, and after a while, I get tired of it as much as Geralt does. So at this point, I feel like you know fuck both sides. Both sides are trying to weasel their way into my heart. Both sides are trying to threaten me into joining them. Threaten, you know, give me you know excuses to fight the other side. But at the end of the day, it's like. Fuck this! I'm going after my own. Uh, he's not sticking to his guidelines anymore. He's on a new path. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you know, I feel like <laughs> let's just say I'm tired of the or the you know as clever as, as clever as the clever as it's constructed. You know the nature of sides. I hope we don't get any more of that in the future. I just want you know. I feel like at this point the sides should be formed and Geralt's his own. You know he's the centrist. You know he's. <laughs> Just after zone. I mean that that's exactly where we're going from here on out. Um, that it is a clear trajectory of everyone else is doing whatever they're doing, and Galt is on a singular path, and that's it. He's he's going after Siri and Nilfgaard. Whether he ever makes it there is another question entirely. Mm-hmm. Considering the fact that he's going after not real Siri. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen there. And Yen will have her own moment of figuring out what side that she belongs on, if at all, any of them. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, I think that is one of the big points of this series. And I think a lot of people, in their attempt to 
you know, um, look at things from a purely modern political standpoint do not quite get. Um, you know, I have seen many a dissection of this of this series, and I saw one in particular that talked about how, uh, you know, uh, Spakowski ain't subtle, and he fully believes in, like, he hates centrists and all that stuff, and I'm just like, Gault is like the ultimate, like, centrist of all time. There's a difference between neutrality and centrist, and not a lot of people understand that. Um, and, like... Maybe it's because the era we live in, you know, I'm growing up in a time of increased political turmoil in my home country, um, and the country that I uh, went to study in was also going through its own turbulent time when I was there and it still is, as you can attest to. Indeed I can, yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, we live in an increasingly polarized age, and because of that, people want to draw lines in the sand and say, this is right, this is wrong, etc. Poland has been through a lot of shit. Uh, some of it good, some of it bad. And uh, continues to go through a lot of shit. And Sapkowski, you know, is a man born out of the anxieties of World War II. You know, he was born, you know, a year or so after the war ended. Warsaw was still de destroyed. It was being rebuilt. He was born in an era underneath the Iron Curtain. You know, Poland was a vassal state of the Soviet Union. Uh, when he started writing these, um, you know, uh, Poland was under martial law for two years, uh, when under Soviet control. It was not a joyous time, and many times it's a lot bleaker than we like to imagine here in the West of what the 80s were. As such, I think what he is trying to say, born from his own experience, is that we all have different uh, opinions, and we're never going to find a way to agree on them. Uh, you know, uh, I say purple, you say green. You know, and that, that's, that's the extent of our disagreement. That's a Babylon 5 joke for anyone who understands. Uh, that, that essentially, politics is a meaningless thing that exists to only destroy us and eventually divide us. It's what it's designed to do. Label us. Democrat, Republican, right-wing, left-wing, etc. But what really matters to the human existence? Love, family, legacy. Uh, and so, for Geralt, it's no longer about neutrality. It's about uh, in, in, in finding a middle ground between both sides, it's about figuring out what matters to him the most. And that, of course, is his family. Yen and Siri, of course, Dandelion and close friends like that. So we will repeatedly see him from here on out, uh, you know, really start driving that home of what matters if you're left wing, right wing, whatever. What matters is that you have a family to go home to. Uh, and is that at the end of the day what we're all fighting for? And so that, I think, is the ultimate lesson at the heart of Witcher, um, is understanding that the only thing that matters is what you leave behind and those you love. Um, and I think that right there is something a lot of people nowadays definitely need to learn. I too. Yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, yeah, that 
you know, I, I live in a world in which a country that is heavily divided amongst itself. And, you know, uh, we, we even see this on a macro scale with the elven relationship with humans. The elves were once the conquerors, once enslaved. Now they, now they are the conquered. The, the wheel kept turning. The cycles of violence continued. The faces change. The, the subject remains the same. Uh, and there, there's, there's a, a talk uh, during Francesca's side of this chapter where her and Phil Evangel, who's from Edge of the World, if you didn't remember him. I said I didn't, no. <laughs> yeah, he's the elf there. Gotcha. They have a discussion about the Scoia'tael and what they should do. Phil Evangel believes, you know, we've earned our back our ancient homeland, but it's not enough. It's not our entire homeland. We need to go and, you know, do this and conquer more. And Francesca says, no, 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 no. We keep what we have. We have this right now. That's all we really need. Um, and to Phil Evangel, that's, that's insulting. That's not enough. Uh, and, you know, to them, they have lived so long in that hatred, uh, in that abuse of the cycles of violence that they know nothing else. Uh, and so it has made them so polarized that they will turn on each other. Mm. Um, and Francesca is right. They have what they need. They don't need anything else. I think in stories like this, there's that line where freedom fighters, you know, if they're not too careful, find themselves the the oppressors. So I, yep. I, I'm getting that kind of vibe with the the elves side of the story in the yep. series. The difference between freedom fighters and terrorists is only by who writes the history. Exactly. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you know the Americans, you know, uh, the the founding fathers are freedom fighters, uh, mm -hmm. but you know the British at the time would certainly beg to differ. Yep. Uh you know the. It is a it is a fine line, and I think that uh, that is Sapkowski's point. You know, if you look at the history of Poland, it is one of being conquered, fighting back, being conquered again, etc., over and over and over for hundreds of years. Um, and what you see is a people who are broken and tired. Uh, I I know some people who live there, and they talk about that. You know, everybody is just so tired in Poland. Not just not physically, but as in mentally, everybody's just done. Uh, and I think that really shows in this series of how the wheel of history kept turning and destroyed a people to a point that they that they cling to whatever they can have right now. To pull another line from Babylon 5, you know, the, the past tempts us, the future frightens us. Uh, and uh, and as we focus on one or the other, the present slowly slips away. Uh, that living in the present is is all we got. Um, and we gotta love what we love now, we gotta have what we have now, and that's what ultimately matters. Uh, and, and to me, Geralt is the ultimate example of that kind of person. Um, and his outlook is one I... 100% agree with. I do, you know, I, I live in a country in which that is, you know, certain sides of the political spectrum would see that as cowardice or traitor or whatever, but that's that's my view on life and that's my view on politics. It's why I don't do politics, as mentioned last time. Um, and so, you know, Sokowski's outlook very much aligns with mine. I don't know if you agree or not, but, you know. Yeah, I've... I think that's a definitely very valid point, mm. you know, given the historical context uh, and as well as the character backgrounds Gales has been given. I think all of that converges into a 
very agreeable point. Mm-hmm. Only other questions I have is about Tissaia. <clears throat> that was quite a dark scene, yeah. Yeah, we haven't really talked about her. The show increased her role. She's played by an actress from Doctor Who, so I figured you would uh, probably have taken a liking to her. Oh, that's who she is. Oh, okay, I, I was struggling to connect it to any Netflix uh, versions. I should really just, whenever I read these books, I should just, just check the, the, <laughs> the Netflix wiki and it's like, oh, so that's who it is. It'll certainly save me the, the <laughs> embarrassment on the show. <laughs> yeah, she's played by the uh, actress from the Devil Planet one, where Satan is like in the middle of the, you know, the planet or whatever. What is, you know, her her suicide here? I talked about uh, Deereen, the Thanid chapter, as well as her chapter in Blood of Elves. How to say is all about order. Uh, the way he describes her, she basically has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Everything has to be tidy, correct, clean, and precise. Um, and uh, because her entire world blew up last chapter, quite literally, with Tor Lara exploding, that, uh, you know, the illusion of order. And I talked about this in the Thanid chapter of how the illusions around Eratusa were slowly falling, showing that it was a castle that had long decayed and that they were propped up with magic and that it looks nothing, it doesn't look anything of beauty, but instead is a mm. crumbling old thing that they refuse to repair because it's worked for so long and it shows their complacency <laughs> and their arrogance on a quite literal physical scale. How the illusion of order dissipated and so now the only thing left is chaos and to say can't live in that world so she kills herself what is your take on that scene the character as a whole and comparison to the way netflix has increased her role with that in mind i feel like netflix knew what i was doing with that character so i like to think that bits they're certainly building up to that moment to make it yes, hit a lot more a lot more home uh closer to home uh, it'd be fascinating to see, you know, regard for both Netflix and for the book version to see Yennefer's reaction to the hearing of this death, of of how she took her life. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because the way that passage was written, it starts off quite uh, poetic. You know, it talks about how the sun is red as blood, and then when it talks about how she kills herself, it's very matter of fact. You know, slits of arteries, and I love that juxtaposition. That was very hard hitting. Yeah, you know, I'll give Netflix credit for this. You know, there's been a lot of issues I've had with them, but they occasionally make some good choices. And one of them was in the Yin origin, which I thought was completely unnecessary, but they did it anyway. They added a scene in which basically Tissaia chastises Yin for attempting to commit suicide, which is something Yin did in the books too. We'll get to that later. when Because okay. uh, that that's actually a thing from the books. And she has this line, Sometimes the only thing a flower can do for us is die. The irony, of course, is if you've read the books, you know how she ends up. Slitting her wrists, committing suicide. Just like Yen did. Just like she oh. chastised Yen for doing. And so, because that scene is there, I guarantee they're going to have to say a slit her wrists. Unless they want to go all dramatic and have her killed in some stupid way. Um, mm. That completely ruins the foreshadowing of that scene and the the poeticism of them adding that. Yeah. Um, which I wouldn't put it past these writers, but who knows? I mean, at that point, they'd just be screwing up their own work instead of <laughs> yeah. the original. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I agree, definitely, that they have set that up well, that if they follow through and actually have to commit suicide that way, it works beautifully in the show. 
uh, and that's high praise coming from me for that show. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, Tessie is an interesting character. We'll get another flashback with her later. But, uh, like, she's, to me, she symbolized the old, the old guard, the, mm. the old mages. You know, in, in that painting of the first sorceresses, we saw that Tessie was there. Uh, and that she's still around. She's one of the first. And the world that those sorceresses built came crumbling down last chapter. She has no world left. Her entire world is gone. So the old guard must die for the new guard to come up. And the new guard is much more ruthless and much more conniving than the already existing ruthless sorceresses. Um, and we will see that in full effect next book. Mm. Um, but to me, her not only is her suicide tragic, uh, and her own need for order leading the chaos and then that chaos slowly killing her, but it also to me is symbolic of the old must die for the new to grow. Um, and uh, like that, uh, and if you consider the fact that Yen is her. Uh, student, one of her most uh, liked students, actually. She talked about that uh, in Chapter 2. In that case, Yen is, in effect, the legacy left behind by Tsei. And what Yen does in the future, um, you know, uh, will reflect that, trying to fix the mistakes of the past, in a way. Uh, or at least overcome the stuff resulted from those mistakes. Um, that Unless you have anything more to say on Tissaia, that was all my questions. I've got my own question, but not related yeah. to Tissaia. All right, so this connects to what we were talking about, the political spectrum and how that can translate to the Witcher world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you uh, on your thoughts on how objectivism may relate to this series. So objectivism is something you and me have talked about in the past uh, at Comic Society. You know, that's it, was a, it played a big part in the origins of, you know, at this point, your well-documented favorite character, the question, and I was curious to see if if you think objectivism has a placement in the Witcher world, in like a, in like characters' motives, in that you know it's about in a way it's it's their putting their desires first, mm -hmm. in, uh, rather than helping their fellow man. I would say no, because. Uh, I would say it definitely exists in this world. I think characters like Vilkefort and Amir exemplify what objectivism leads to more than anything else. Um, and uh, objectivism is a complicated thing because essentially it's arguing for selfishness. Selfishness of the purest kind, not about uh, helping any others but yourself. That includes family. Um, and we see how detestable that kind of behavior is to Geralt and to everyone else that are our major characters. Um, and that's exemplified especially in the short stories, but also uh, recently as well with like the mage who fled. Uh, you know, Geralt will go out of his way because he cares a lot to help others. Yen, you know, she was taught to live in the objectivist philosophy. The needs of yourself matter more than anything else. That is the mage way. But she found that empty and hollow. Um, and so she found others to care about. Geralt, 
and eventually Siri. Uh, and that gave her the drive to leave that philosophy behind. And so I think objectivism, you know, I'm I'm not sure if it, it mattered at all to Sapkowski because that is a very uh, Western philosophy, and I'm not sure how much he knew about it, if at all. But in my opinion, it, uh, this entire series is a condemnation of objectivism and saying that care about your family, care about your friends, care about your fellow man in a certain way, do not just look after yourself. Genuine human kindness is most important above all. Um, and finding people to care about is important to grow as a human. Uh, selfishness is nothing but pure greed. I think that is the statement. You asked that question, so therefore you have a read. What is your opinion on that? Well, it's quite difficult to get into. Is this what you were talking about earlier about Geralt being neutral to to the wider macro conflict, and he's putting his you know his loved ones first? So mm -hmm. I wondered if there could be an argument that he's being an objectivist in this in this scenario. Uh, I like to think he's not. I like to think he does care about his, mm -hmm. you know, as much as uh, book one, Geralt might like to refuse it. You know, book Geralt was all about, you know, I don't want to save people. I just want to, well, no, he, he does save people, but it's for profit. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. his purpose as well. Witcher does, you know, get hired, slay the beast, take a few insults from the people you're saving, and then just head off to next town. So I wondered if there could be an argument that he's an objectivist in this case, you know, back then doing it for the money and now doing it for, for his loved ones. I mean, I could see the argument, but I would point yeah. to your favorite short story, Grain of Truth. There was no monetary value in it at all. True, very true. I'm not saying I think he's an objectivist. I just think uh, there's an interesting parallel there between, between what we were yeah. talking about, you know, where, you know, this is a hypothetical question because I think it would be quite a, a very hard question to ask, answer, but where's the line between being neutral and being uh, selfish, you know, objectivist? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, it is definitely uh an an interesting argument, an interesting idea. Um, to me, um, uh, if we're going to like go full blown, hey, let, let's look at uh Kyle's favorite character, Vic Sage. Question, like, Vic Sage because Steve Ditko was objectivist. Um, his um, his philosophy was throughout that, and he was he was cleaned up a whole lot for the CCA, the Commerce Code Authority. If you want the true, unfiltered, objectivist Steve Ditko character, look up a character called Mr. A. Um, but in uh, the 80s, when Denny O'Neill got a hand on him, and he vehemently disagrees with objectivism, he took the character of Vic Sage, quite literally murdered him, mm -hmm. and, then and then revived him to make him see a wider spectrum of ideas. And to me... That is, in essence, what has happened to Geralt. Um, you have a character who was, in a way, selfish. Not exactly. He did have a code of ethics that no other Witcher had, because the Witcher code was created by him. It's, a, it's an individual thing only for him. Uh, but he still, you know, he put on that comfort blanket of the emotionless monster hunter who's out for money. And we see him slowly breaking that down as time goes on, and then we get to something more, in which he has the quite literal chat with Death, uh, in which he thinks Yen is dead. And, and he believes Ciri's dead, too, so he has this entire thing of, I've lost everything. And if you notice, when Geralt has lost everything, that's when his mind is finally free to listen. This is a repeated thing that happens throughout. 
And uh, in his chat with Death, he realizes that I was being stupid. I was being selfish. I was being bullheaded. I need to get my head out of my ass and I need to move. Um, and to me, that is what the arc of Bovik and Galt is. Is learning to come out of your bubble. Learning to accept others' help and help others in return. Is it a more middle ground than becoming a great, you know, hero for change, you know, social justice, all that jazz? Yes. But it's one that I can agree with, you know, at the, the end of the day, you know, part of us growing as people is learning from, you know, being codependent on our parents to growing up to being independent. And then eventually, as with the legacy of most people, you know, find a partner you know, of whatever sex or gender, uh, and carry on your legacy by having that person help you carry the weight of your own existence, and vice versa. Um, and so, to me, it's about learning to love and learning to care. Uh, so I wouldn't say that Gauss is subjectivist, but I, would, I could certainly see the argument that his short story self especially those first few short stories when he's younger he's more brash um definitely could be leaning in that direction but he has learned the lessons taught to him over time um and i think like i said vilgefort and amir are characters who are 100 percent selfish 100 percent uh all about their own needs over everyone else screw everyone else definitely shows that and I would also argue that Philippa, one of my favorite characters, the entire point of the character, as I've talked about before, both solely and on one of the ones you showed up on, that uh, Philippa is supposed to be the examination of when can selfishness be a good thing and when can it be a bad thing, and can those two coexist? Um, and so uh, I would say that, that that's the answer. It's somewhere in between. But it, it's definitely one that, as not a philosophy person, I cannot answer fully. Mm. Uh, but it's only one that I can speak through my current understanding as a 24-year-old. Uh, so, you know, uh, that may change in years, that may not. Uh, but that is the view I have. What spawns this question in particular, out of general curiosity? I'm on tiny shit, to be honest. Uh, we've just been talking the whole series about choose a side mm-hmm. um you know we've got characters you know who who are like oh it, it is our duty to these things you've got characters who are like i'm doing these things because it services me dies uh-huh. sports yeah i thought i felt rather natural just to to bring it up really yeah i mean it's a perfectly valid question and it, i think it's definitely one that is interesting and can be right in multiple ways and i think as we go on throughout the series um, I think we could potentially return to this question because it is actually one that I've never personally thought about. But now that you say it, I see a lot of parallels between Geralt's journey and Vic's journey uh, that is there to be talked about, hmm. even though they come from very different cultures and very different worlds around the same time, actually, uh, the 80s. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. Just to give my final thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, I think this is a huge step up from the previous one because you know we talked about how that felt 
it was kind of stuck in that awkward middle ground of still being short stories and becoming part of this more bigger saga. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like the story, you know, it lives up to the hype you were giving it. You know, shit certainly does hit the fan. You know, the characters are swimming in shit. Uh, there's a lot more. There's such a bigger scope to this in terms of the the world building and the writing. So yeah, this has definitely got me a lot more excited for for the upcoming saga. So I shall be joining you in uh, in the next book. Yep, uh, and we we shall find out what chapters uh, you'll be on when you start reading it. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, Baptism of Fire is an interesting one because um, it is, um, you know, we were talking a lot about how Geralt has grown as a character. It essentially, to me, is the is the Geralt book. It's the book where he finally grows into the man we know him to be by the end of the saga. Uh, and I, I and I often describe Tower of Swallows as the Siri book. The the one that grows her to be a character that the character that we know at the end of the saga, so uh, I'll be interesting to, to hear your thoughts on that. And it's also very different because, uh, as I said before, we were recording. It has a D and D feel to it uh, <laughs> in in many ways. Uh, and so uh, look forward to that. But until then, bye. Goodbye. <laughs>